every, every Sunday night, except the next two Sunday nights, it won't be, will it? It'll be Communist University and with different timing and different login and all that. So remember that we come back on the 29th of uh, uh, August after Communist University and a short holiday for the uh, weekly worker staff. Um, if we had some staff, that is. <laughs> so it's an online communist forum organised jointly by CPGB and Labour Party Marxists. And tonight uh, we've got Kevin Bean giving the political opening, after which we'll have open discussion. Kevin, over to you. OK, thanks, Dan. Um, just to say that uh, there have been a couple of technical problems, so the usual... Uh, speaker isn't available and uh, they've asked the um, Labour Party Marxist steering group to put up a speaker so I'm afraid that uh, you've got me um, anyway uh, it used to be called the silly season and uh, it was always a period in which uh, it was deemed that not much was happening in politics in the world and the papers could uh, just run stories about the weather either record-breaking uh, uh, temperatures or a bit of a, a summer washout. Well, uh, it is still, I suppose, August and weather is making the news, but uh, the reasons why it's making the news are not just for cool or what are Scorcher-style headlines, but actually because of issues of climate change and indeed some of the serious problems that that's throwing up. So uh, in tonight's uh, report, uh, or my opening for this discussion, I'm going to talk a little bit about the debate on climate change. But uh, there are a couple of other quite important political questions as well. Uh, recent developments in Afghanistan. And uh, of course, uh, the Labour Party and some other developments in British politics, too. Um, so it you know, is a holiday period that the politicians have all gone off on their staycations. Um, that's when they're not sort of jetting around the world, in the case of Alok Sharma, the uh, Minister for Climate Change, or, um, or, or elsewhere. So let's, uh, let's begin with uh, Afghanistan then. Um, the reports that are coming in from Afghanistan seem to indicate that the, uh, that the Kabul government, the regime, is really now facing very severe pressure. Um, Provincial capitals are falling. The latest one that seems to have fallen earlier today was Kanduz, which is sort of up in the north central area. And as with the capture of uh, some of the areas uh, on the, um, the western border with Iran, and also with some of the other border areas uh, towards Turkmenistan, these are all quite important um, uh, communications routes um, fighting's also uh, still going on uh, in, in, in other uh, important city, cities. Uh, uh, Kandahar is another one, Herat. And um, it seems that these, uh, these places will, will fall to the Taliban in a matter of days. Um, the rapid uh, pace of the Taliban advance, I think, has taken a lot of people by surprise. And um, it uh, throws up. I think some quite important questions about the um, about the future. Um, the rapid advance of the Taliban was uh, 
coincided with the withdrawal of uh, American and uh, British troops. Um, and uh, although this was scheduled to be completed by the symbolic date of uh, September the 11th, it was in effect uh, pretty well completed last month, leaving only small groups of um, American uh, British soldiers uh, guarding embassies and, and other areas in and around Kabul. And of course, as, the, uh, as these troops withdrew, then the Taliban were able to come in. And despite all the talk that the Afghan army was uh, well equipped, it was well trained, and that indeed it was uh, well organized and would be in a position to resist the Taliban, it seems essentially to have collapsed in many areas. Um, again, it's very difficult to get accurate reports. And um, if you rely on uh, the media, in, or certainly the English speaking media, some of the international media, it does seem that uh, numbers of um, government troops have either defected or simply voted with their feet. They've decided that uh, it's probably better not to resist the Taliban and in a sense join the winning side. I suppose why this is significant for any uh, discussion is that if the, uh, if the supporters of the government are, have pretty low morale and indeed are not really prepared to fight and indeed will go over to the enemy, then that means that the regime lacks really the popular base uh, to continue. And although there's plenty of talk that um, uh, Allied air support, in particular the, um, the Americans uh, with their B-52 bombers, will be able to drop uh, large amounts of bombs on the, uh, on the Taliban, really there's no substitute for not only troops on the ground, but perhaps a more important political support on the ground. Um, as we all know, uh, often small forces, if they have high morale and above, above all a commitment to fight, can actually turn the tide. And I suppose what we're seeing here is very reminiscent of, of other wars uh, in, in Iraq and in Syria, where um, government forces simply melt away in the face of a determined and uh, very effective enemy. So we, we have then, I think, uh, a regime that's uh, tottering and um, despite, the, um, despite the arguments of uh, many uh, Western governments that uh, this regime can continue, it does seem, I think, to um, have limited support. What support it does have seems to be in the cities, and in many ways it's um, a rather desperate support, um, a support of uh, people who um, realise that if the Taliban return, and take over the, the cities, then many aspects of the sort of lives they've been living, the sort of jobs they've been doing, are going to end. And indeed, in the, um, in the areas that the Taliban have taken control, they've often uh, executed um, uh, important supporters of the regime, or in some cases have, um, you know, clearly attempted to sort of turn the clock back towards their particularly reactionary forms of Islamism um, with the reimposition of restrictions on women, the ending of certain uh, education, and above all attacks upon people like teachers, um, uh, you know, health workers, and, uh, and journalists and reporters 
um, and indeed in a, a, a noteworthy case, uh, the, the, the murder of a, a well-known uh, Afghan comedian who sort of satirized them. So the, uh, so the Taliban do look to be, uh, you know, in the ascendancy and um, it looks, I suppose, on the face of it as, uh, as if this government can't really go on. Um, it's interesting that in the various interviews that the, uh, the Afghan government have given various advisors and indeed uh, uh, people involved with their st strategy, they've tried to talk up, um, you know, their position. And, you, know, you know, you wouldn't really expect them to do anything else, but um, they obviously feel isolated in the words of uh, one BBC correspondent, they feel friendless. Um, the, the, the Kabul government doesn't have any important uh, supporters who are prepared to put troops on the ground, um, and they're having to rely upon um, these uh, this this air power, and that of course is is rather limited in terms of effectiveness. It can certainly slow the advance, but in terms of um, really regaining territory, uh, not really very likely. The um, the other uh, strategy that the Kabul government's put forward is a so-called consolidation, which again reminds me of um, those phrases, those of us who you know, have ever been interested in the history of the Second World War, the so-called strategic retreat or strategic withdrawal. In other words, that you're um, retreating in order to regroup. Um, although I don't think the word retreat was ever used, it was more a strategic uh, 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 regroupment, which usually meant surrendering large amounts of territory to the enemy. But the, the idea is to consolidate forces in, in the towns and the cities and to, uh, to try to end the idea that they can control all of the territory. I mean, that's always been fairly nominal, um, simply um, setting up, say, a customs post or a border post or a command post in a territory running up the flag and then saying we control it, when in effect it, the area you control is only around the post itself. Will this work? It may slow up the advance, but as we've seen with the capture of the provincial capitals and with the fact that the, the, the Taliban are moving into all sorts of different parts of the country, both in the western provinces, but also down into the south, uh, and, uh, and into the north as well. This would suggest that uh, the government may well be able to hold on to some strategic points. But in the urban fighting that's gone on, uh, we see some of the same phenomena of, um, of forces melting away uh, or of being easily overrun. Why I, I stress the morale question is, I suppose, part of the wider significance of, of Afghanistan. Um, comrades will remember that in the um, in the uh, late um, sorry in the late 1980s, the early 1990s, once the Soviet Union had withdrawn its forces, and indeed even when the Soviet Union was in the process of disintegration, the um, the, the, the the PDP government uh, are in, in Afghanistan was able to maintain a degree of resistance uh, to both the Northern Alliance and the, the Taliban. It was in a position, um, again, because I think it was, uh, although it was very beleaguered, 
it had a few friends and indeed the United States and uh, others were supporting the, uh, the anti-government forces. It still had a, a degree of popular support, particularly in the urban population amongst um, uh, some sections of urban workers, members of the petty bourgeoisie and so forth, who saw the government as offering some form of progress, uh, you know, the, the reforms that had been carried out by the PD, PDP government uh, still, in a sense, offered something. Now that morale was very important in, in slowing up the disintegration of the regime, didn't stop it in the end. But here, in a sense, the hollowness of this, uh, this regime is really exposed uh, to all. The other, uh, the other sort of morale factor, though, is, of course, the impact that this will have on the standing of the United States and indeed of their allies. And indeed, what it will have on the geopolitics of the, um, of the region. Um, Afghanistan is at a very important, uh, in a very important geopolitical uh, part of the world. Um, there is a very small border with China. Um, if you're familiar with the map of Afghanistan, you'll be aware of that sort of panhandle that goes up into the east and that, um, uh, that borders uh, China. Um, in terms of uh, um, real sort of impact though, China does have a strategic interest in the stability of, uh, of Afghanistan, particularly should it prove to be some sort of base or some sort of support area for uh, an Islamist movement developing in its western, in the Chinese western territories, the areas populated by Uyghurs. But um, that interest in stability is also linked to its wider interests, particularly in relation to India and to Pakistan. And of course, Pakistan is, is a key player uh, in this. Uh, in many senses, the Taliban uh, operated and, and you know, were, in a sense, supported by sections of the Pakistan government. And so their, uh, their interests will, I think, become very interesting. Their position will become very interesting in the next few weeks and months. Likewise, Iran to the West has, uh, has an interest in not allowing this area to completely fall into, uh, into civil war and to disorder, particularly as, again, it could uh, fuel instabilities within its own border. And likewise, uh, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan to the north also um, have interests there. And of course, other powers uh, will also um, want to stabilize this situation. And um, there are certain dynamics heading in that way. Um, one thing I think we can be clear about is that the current regime won't continue uh, indefinitely. It's likely to fall. It may fall, I think, before uh, the, the, the autumn or the, uh, certainly before the winter. But the form of any new government, I think, will, uh, will be uncertain. Um, the, the Taliban have been taking part in negotiations in Doha, and these have um, had a rather stop-start existence, with possibly the Taliban using uh, offers of some sort of compromise, for example, of, of coming up with what uh, one BBC correspondent described as a form of power sharing, in which the Taliban would take part in the government 
along with other parties, there would be some exclusions and indeed some restrictions, but that the Taliban would, would in a sense, get some um, you know, position in the government. Um, and they would do this on the basis of the territory that they'd already gained. So that, uh, that's one possibility. Another possibility is simply that the Taliban will allow the regime to collapse. Um, they, will, um, they will advance so far and in a sense by threatening the regime, capturing uh, particular territories, they will let the government sort of implode. Um, uh, you know, again, uh, a very well-known military strategy of um, letting your enemies fight amongst themselves and uh, letting the government disintegrate and to allow you then to, to, to walk in. The, uh, the other fear, and um, it again come, came last night with the um, uh, message from, from Western governments to their uh, citizens living in Afghanistan and indeed uh, some of their, uh, their own uh, officials, was that anybody not having urgent reasons to be in the country should leave. And indeed, there are some reports that some countries are pulling out their embassies or are scaling back their operations. And that um, you know, we might see the, uh, the repeat, the famous um, helicopter scramble out of Saigon, which of course is you know, indelibly, indelibly um, imprinted on the minds of uh, American strategists and politicians as a very humiliating um, very very humiliating retreat and uh, as you many many British Tory politicians and um, and also uh, various uh, military figures have, um, have argued that uh, that this withdrawal really sort of scuttling out of Afghanistan with the tail between the legs. If you can scuttle with your tail between your legs, it's a very difficult maneuver, but uh, just getting out as quick as you can uh, will, in a sense, demonstrate the, the inability of the West to fulfill uh, any, any type of project or any type of mission. Because, of course, if we go back to the origins of, um, uh, of this uh, in the early 2000s, following the events of September the 11th, 2001, and perhaps back even further, um, American governments uh, argued that they could intervene and in a sense, uh, not only uh, deal with terrorists, but they could also um, begin a project of getting rid of the conditions that allowed terrorists to operate freely. In other words, the Taliban government, which allowed Al-Qaeda, um, to operate freely in, in the territory of Afghanistan, that they could sweep the, that government away, but also they would unleash um, a wave of popular support for reconstruction and indeed nation building. And of course, in a, a system that is a dynamic, a system that is progressive, can often um, you know, infuse, mobilize masses to uh, in a sense, rebuild or re remodel their society. But the failure of the United States to do this, and indeed its inability to do nothing more than to sort of hold very strong points with large numbers of troops and materiel to hold on to those. Uh, and then uh, when they, they, they fail, they fail both to build uh, any type of viable nation 
but also they even failed to uh, curtail the military threat of the Taliban and the, the Taliban simply, um, you know, sim simply continue. Um, as one American general um, pointed out, um, really sort of, I suppose, talking about the, the perspective of the, what they saw of the perspective of the Taliban, they said, well, we, the Americans have the watches, but they have the time. In other words, that they were quite prepared to uh, continue a campaign over the long term and in a sense wear down the um, you know the 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 uh, NATO troops, the American troops, and in in that they then they've succeeded. Um, because the Taliban's project is not, for example, linked to a real project of nation building or indeed of national liberation, I think the wider political impacts are not comparable say to the Vietnam War when a, a national liberation movement was, was linked to um, the, the old official communist regimes, was seen in a sense within the wider Cold War perspective. And so um, the, the American defeat then uh, you know, fitted into that and it did put the United States very much on the back foot for a period of time. But uh, it still would be a, a, a very significant defeat, I think, for the United States. And uh, just to repeat the, the points made by a number of British conservatives um, and uh, military people, which have been repeated again today, that uh, this really is a blow to the prestige. Particularly, um, I think of um, those, um, those military who believe that their firepower and particularly their, their superior technology could in a sense uh, create uh, facts on the ground. And, you know, as we can see, it's, it's the degree of popular support. Probably the Taliban um, don't, uh, you know, insofar as we can see, don't have widespread support. It's very clear that in the towns and the cities, you know, many people are fearful about what's going to happen. But it's perhaps more so that, that people don't see anything positive in, the, in the, the, the government in Kabul. And so I think what we're likely to see is, um, is its collapse. We may also see, I think, fragmentation. We may see, uh, in, in many ways, the sort of partition of Afghanistan. There are different ethnic, uh, to a certain extent, um, linguistic groups as well very clear differences between the north and the south, with, um, uh, with areas in the south being quite linked um, in uh, cultural and ethnic terms to uh, Pakistan. And so it's possible that uh, local leaders may set up and we may then see the fragmentation uh, of the area. But that's really all I think to, to, to be sort of determined. And so from that point of view, um, we will just have to wait and see and wait for the next regional capital to fall and to uh, look for the next uh, attempt um, to um, you know, halt the advance. Um, but you know, the perspective for the government doesn't look, I think, very good uh, at the moment. Uh, the, second, uh, the second strand that I want to talk about is, uh, is climate change, which of course is, um, it is very much linked 
both to British politics, but also the global situation. And I'm sure comrades have been following this, and particularly the, um, the proposals coming out of a, a report, the, the, Inter the Intergovernmental uh, Committee on uh, Climate Change. And uh, this, um, this body is, uh, is a in a sense preparing a report in the lead, lead up to the Climate Change Conference, which will be held in Glasgow in the, uh, in the autumn. And the, um, the issue does interlink not only with what's happening uh, in the world, but also with the, uh, the Johnson government's uh, own policy at home. Uh, obviously, um, uh, Britain is hosting the conference, taking the lead, and uh, is uh, trying, apparently, to come up with uh, some sort of compromises, some sort of ideas that can reduce uh, the rate of uh, change uh, in the climate. Uh, we've had plenty of graphic examples of changing climate patterns. Um, I mean, just over the last few days, the situation in Greece, uh, very dramatic pictures of uh, areas around Athens, uh, forest fires and fires uh, in the mountains, uh, the rescue of people in, in boats. And of course, that follows on from similar uh, fires in Turkey. Uh, I think there's a report in this week's Weekly Worker from a uh, comrade in Turkey about that situation. But it's part of a, a worldwide pattern, not only of fires, uh, we, we again will record the um, the, the fires in California and in the western parts of the United States, but also the uh, record temperatures and indeed the impact that those temperatures had on the, the lives of people living in northwestern United States and British Columbia. Um, and of course, we then have the opposite side of that. We've got the, uh, the, the flooding that occurred in western Germany and in, uh, in, in Belgium and uh, the, the devastation that was caused there, both devastation caused by the uh, you know, natural event of the, of, the, of the rain and so on, but also devastation caused, uh, it seems, by the uh, inadequacies of uh, flood defences and preparations um, for, um, for flood, uh, you know, to, to prevent the floods, and uh, this has led to political uh, recriminations in Germany, possibly giving a fillip to the, uh, the Greens who um, uh, you know, have been polling very well, although they have recently um, fallen back a little bit. But it means that um, these issues are very much on the political agenda. The, um, the sort of news daily throws up the possibilities of all sorts of uh, outcomes for climate change. For example, in, in the last week, uh, a, a report about the um, pattern of the Gulf Stream, and in particular, the fact that the Gulf Stream may simply be blocked, it may uh, take a different form. Now, um, we, we're still really at the stage of not knowing what that, uh, what that might mean, but a good example is that if the Gulf Stream um, shifts by a hundred or a couple of hundred miles or so, then it can change the weather patterns in the British Isles and in northwestern Europe considerably. 
So um, we only have to look, for example, at the, the, our prevailing weather patterns coming in from the West, uh, coming in off of the Atlantic. And uh, of course, any shifts in that, which keeps uh, the British Isles fairly temperate, then we, we could, given that we're on the same latitude as uh, parts of Labrador and parts of Siberia and Northern Europe, we could actually have quite significant changes uh, in our climate. Uh, those of us who lived on the western side of the British Isles know that uh, the Gulf Stream enables us, for example, to go swimming off, um, well, sometimes off the northwestern coast of Scotland. It allows palm trees to grow, grow in parts of Ireland and indeed in parts of uh, Lancashire and the west coast of Scotland. Um, so it gives us quite a temperate uh, climate. And of course, the possibilities of that change in just one sort of small uh, example uh, of that. Now, what I think is interesting, um, and we can, uh, we, we can possibly see this in, in some of today's newspapers, is that the, the, the Conservative government has really um, began, in a sense, to make this a very uh, significant element of their political agenda. Today's Observer uh, has a lead story. We're on the brink of cat catastrophe, warns uh, Tory climate chief. That's Alok Sharma. And he's really building on a lot of these reports and a lot of a sense that you know time is running out, particularly in terms of rising levels of temperature and the impact that this might have on um, on the uh, on the Arctic and the Antarctic as well, but but then particularly on levels uh, sea levels, and the possibility that uh, not only countries like Bangladesh, which are um, in a very um, you know have you know very very liable to be inundated, any number of Pacific islands also in the same situation, but even larger cities like London, uh, which have a, a flood flood defences. Again, a recent report suggests that the, the times, the number of times when the, the flood barriers have been uh, up in order to deal with uh, uh, higher tides and so forth, it has in fact increased. Um, I think some figures that I saw this week suggested that um, these, uh, these figures have been um, usually something like a couple of times a year and it has now gone up to something like 10 times a year. So even somewhere like London, which we might assume is relatively well protected, um, and indeed other parts of Eastern England, which are quite low, uh, low lying. Um, uh, I wasn't actually alive at the time, but uh, the, the, the flooding in Eastern England in the, in the early 1950s was well remembered when I was growing up in, in those areas of North Kent, where um, there had been flooding and, and you know in loss of life so uh, the impact of, of climate change has I think become now a major political issue but of course in becoming a major political issue we come up with the problem of, of, of how is this going to be tackled and as, uh, as Marxists we well understand that in a society in a capitalist society in which uh, production is for profit and in which um, you know, the dynamics of that economy drive increasingly and have been driving many of the patterns historically which create the, the dynamics for climate change, that it will take really very 
strong and very severe action uh, to deal with it. And indeed, uh, for many comrades on the left, the argument simply is that capitalism is unable to deal with the question. And indeed, it isn't uh, able to deal with the question. The dynamics of, uh, of, of, of quite major clim climate change will require radical action, which can only be really carried out by the working class movement, by, uh, by uh, you know, a socialist transformation, not just in one country but indeed over the wide area of the world. So that is not just a theory, we can, we can look at that very clearly. But I think that um, what we also have though is uh, something of a discussion about whether um, capitalist governments and particularly whether, the, whether governments like the Tories in Britain could uh, carry out some sort of amelioration. In other words, that rather than just simply um, arguing that, that uh, attempts to restrict uh, temperature growth or average rise in temperatures would require really quite dramatic uh, restructuring of society, that the Tories are just going to let it rip. And indeed that would, I think, have been the case a few years ago but I think it's also clear that, as we can see from the current pandemic, and indeed from some of the historical roles of the capitalist state, that capitalists are quite prepared in times of dire emergency to suspend the law of value. In other words, for the state to carry out actions which are uh, sometimes restrict the activities of capitalism and indeed may, may curtail it. Uh, in order to maintain the system uh, in its widest sense. Um, we've often talked about the, um, the way that the, the Tories in Britain, but also other governments to a certain extent, the United States as well, in dealing with the COVID crisis, that they've been prepared to, in a sense, introduce a type of COVID socialism. We don't mean socialism, but we mean restrictions and indeed state action um, to deal with an emergency, for example, the vaccine, uh, the development of the vaccine, and indeed uh, to carry out other uh, measures uh, during the lockdown, which might have an impact on the profits of individual businesses. Indeed, um, you know, it's very clear that in, in terms of the general interest, particularly the general capitalist interest, then uh, capitalist governments We'll, we'll do that. Rishi Sunak talked about tearing up the rule book, uh, throwing away the textbooks and doing whatever it was uh, necessary uh, to do that. So it's quite possible that uh, capitalist governments will do that. I think, however, though, that um, what is probably more likely at this stage, and one of the things that we as uh, socialists and communists should be doing, is to expose the, you know, the very limited nature and indeed, in some ways, the pseudo solutions that are being propagated. So, for example, um, you know, uh, some of the ideas about um, dealing with uh, the question of um, uh, climate change and the, and the Arctic of trying, in a sense, to artificially uh, rebuild, if you can, that's the way of putting it, but to refreeze the Arctic to intervene. Various ideas are put forward. Um, 
uh, Sir David King, former Chief Government Scientific uh, uh, Advisor, has been uh, advocating something of this sort. But these are often uh, very much tinkering solutions. And indeed, they, um, they may well have uh, adverse side effects. Likewise, the, the big push for carbon neutrality and the big push for um, uh, electric cars, um, you know, there are many side effects and indeed uh, the likelihood is that, that in some senses there will be more problems caused than resolved through those, uh, those particular activities. So we, we have, I think, not only to um, argue um, for uh, real action, but also to be aware of the dangers of pseudo-solutions. I think we've also got to be aware of another tendency which uh, often comes out, and that is to regard um, these issues as being simply individual moralism. So that, for example, if we alter our individual behavior, if, for example, we, we change our diets or we, um, we, we drive less or we don't go on foreign holidays, or indeed in its more draconian form um, amongst the more uh, Malthusian and indeed anti-human advocates, um, that we, in a sense, uh, sacrifice um, sections of the population. I don't mean that... <laughs> you know, a, a murder program, but a type of Malthusianism which says that there are too many people. But indeed, it's human beings that are the problem. And of course, our approach is not to regard uh, the situation like that. Our approach is to talk about the relationship of man and nature and to talk about, you know, the, the reconfiguration of that relationship. But our, our program, and in particular our defensive and minimum program, must always be focused on that. It's also clear that uh, given that the, the, the chances of world socialism are limited in the next year or two, not on the immediate uh, horizon, and given the fact that these problems are global, these are international problems, and that in particular climate and other systems are, are, are interlinked, uh, that the, the actions of governments or the actions of one area can have a, a tremendous impact in areas far away. But this does require uh, international action. It also means though that we, um, we cannot ignore it and uh, we, I think, have to de develop not only a, um, a minimum program that uh, defends the interests of the working class and by doing so defends the interests of, of general humanity, but we also have to realize that the um, that the protest politics, and undoubtedly there will be protest politics uh, around the, uh, the climate change conference, or indeed the sort of pseudo solutions, both on an individual level and on a, a, a level of individual countries or of particular sectors of the economy, that these are not sufficient. And there's an argument for um, the socialist transformation of the planet and, you know, the re the restructuring of society, uh, and again, really quite radical change in, in re restructuring and reorganizing society, then this problem will not only not be um, uh, ameliorated, it will actually get worse. So we do have, I think, a prime example of where there's a contradiction between the needs of the working class and indeed of humanity in general, and those of capitalism. 
and um, you know our our ideas must be those of um, not just simply a protest but of real transformation and real defense of the interests of the working class um my last uh, my last area is to is to talk about an area that uh, is possibly close to my heart as member of the Labour Party Marxist Steering Committee, and that is uh, that is the development of the Labour Party. Um, again, if Boris Johnson is uh, and his climate uh, people are having a bit of a, a silly season, well, uh, Starmer's in the same position. Um, indeed, um, he. Um, he seems this week to have made really quite an interesting turn uh, towards Blairism. Uh, in an article in the FT, he uh, praised uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and said that we should not uh, be afraid of their very real achievements. And indeed, he, um, he argued that uh, he would like, in a sense, to build upon that. This follows uh, quite a few uh, Developments, sometimes media leaks, sometimes uh, small statements and speeches and so forth that Starmer has been making over the summer. He's uh, been doing a tour of the seasides. If, you, uh, if you've been having a staycation, you may be unlucky enough to have had him walking along a pier near you and maybe trying to get, get a picture taken with you. Or um, very unlikely, I think, but you may even have been invited to one of his focus groups. He's been organising these, and strangely, uh, these uh, these completely randomly chosen focus groups have been coming up with uh, a number of proposals, which all seem to suggest that Labour has lost touch with voters, that Labour was far too left wing, that Jeremy Corbyn was a disaster, was an extremist. And uh, these, uh, these focus groups, and indeed the, the whole climate around this, have been organised by a number of um, former Blairites, in particular one of uh, Blair's um, polling gurus, uh, Deborah Mattinson. And uh, surprise, surprise, she, she thinks that uh, Labour needs to, in a sense, go back to Blairism, go back to the new Labour uh, pattern. Now, why I think this is interesting, why I think it's important for us to, to think about it, is to try and get a handle on, uh, on Blair's, on Starmer's strategy. Um, for those comrades uh, on the left who've uh, either been expelled or suspended or attacked, it's quite understandable that many of them think that, that Starmer's running some sort of scorched earth policy. And it's quite, quite a widely held belief that what Starmer wants to do is in some senses sort of destroy the Labour Party, that he particularly wants to have a scorched earth policy that will get rid of the left, drive the left out of the party, and uh, that he will, he will do anything to, you know, to achieve that. Almost in a sense, uh, you know, rather like Samson, um, you know, pulling down the, uh, the pillars, that he's so determined to destroy the left that he's almost going to destroy the Labour Party. Uh, in, in the process. Well, he's, he may well want to, you know, drastically remodel the Labour Party. He may well drastically want to um, uh, build or um, 
increase the role of, of, of the influence of the leader. He may well want to do all of those things. But what he doesn't want to do is to do that at the expense of getting elected. Starmer is a, a career politician. He's very much part of the establishment. He's probably in his own way, given his role in the law, probably more uh, a pillar of the establishment than Blair was before he became uh, prime minister. So Starmer's, uh, Starmer needs to demonstrate both to the ruling class and indeed to sections of the electorate that he thinks he needs to win over. He needs to demonstrate that he's a safe pair of hands, that Labour is a safe, acceptable second 11 for capitalism. And that above all, the, the left, as represented by Corbyn, you know, has been finally put to, you know, put to flight, that the left is no longer a threat and that uh, Labour is now back in safe hands. This not only you know, keeps him in good stead with his, um, his mates in the establishment, it keeps him in good stead with the ruling class and with the media, but also um, it's supposed to work electorally. It's supposed to demonstrate uh, straight out of the Tony Blair playbook that you reinvent Labour, you say that anything that was wrong with Labour is now the bad old days, we're acting to deal with it. And in that way, you demonstrate your electoral credibility. So much of what, what Starmer's doing is actually symbolic and is um, really designed, I think, to secure that election. For example, the recent prescription of uh, four groupings uh, and indeed the sort of implied uh, prescription uh, and threats towards other groupings are designed to demonstrate that that he's acting tough, that he's taking the right sort of, doing the right sort of messages. And then indeed he's modeling himself on Blair. Uh, you, you'll recall that Blair did the same sort of thing electorally with the clause four uh, rewrite, but also um, Kinnock, again, comrades will remember in the 1980s, Kinnock's speech in 85, in which, um, he attacked the, the militant councillors in, in Liverpool. And again, that was a good demonstration, as far as Kinnock was concerned, of who was in charge. So taking on his own party is, in some senses, a key part of the electoral strategy. Um, he's assisted in that by the relatively acquiescent, uh, apart from a few grumbles, of the official left. Um, the Socialist Campaign Group has has muttered a few things, but no one's putting their head above the parapet. Momentum likewise, and uh, even the left trade unions as well have been relatively muted. Indeed, in, in many ways, the response to the left has been worse than that because for some sections of the left, their opposition to prescriptions has been so hedged around with equivocation that it's, it's next to useless. And, um, uh, you know, in recent meetings of, of the left, it's been very clear that uh, people are prepared to be critical, but prepared to do little about it and to actively defend not only those comrades who've been expelled, but perhaps more importantly, to actively defend the idea that it's quite possible to be part of the working class movement and have ideas and positions which are hostile to those of the uh, of the leadership.
The, um, the, the process seems to be building up towards the Brighton Conference at the end of uh, September. And it's quite possible that this will be, um, you know, something of a turning point. Um, again, he does seem to be following this Blair playbook. And will he, for example, make a dramatic set of announcements about what he's going to do to the left? Will he um, uh, possibly, you know, uh, call for the or get the expulsion of Jeremy Corbyn? Will he launch further prescriptions? All very unclear exactly what he's going to do. But I think um, what, what is being done is at this stage really more symbolic than real. Uh, as far as I'm aware, you know, talking to comrades on the left, none of the uh, none of the groups that have been uh, prescribed have um, have had any of their members expelled. Many of them already got expelled members, of course, but there have been no fresh waves of expulsions. In other words, that is something that can be you know held in reserve. Uh, he's made his declaration. He's got his headlines in the papers. But the wholesale purge hasn't yet uh, occurred. It may well, it may well come. It may well build. But uh, he can also use the threat of a purge as a way of, um, you know, uh, reining in and controlling uh, official groups uh, like Momentum, like the Socialist Campaign Group. In terms of his wider strategy, I think a certain amount is going to depend on the UNITE election uh, for the new general secretary, which um, takes place in, uh, or it ends at the end of October, I think about the 25th. And if, um, if, he, if he gets his favored candidate, uh, Jared Coyne, a, a right winger uh, elected, then in a way the position of the left will be really severely weakened. The fact that there are two left candidates standing against uh, Jared Coyne um, means that there's a split left vote, I think is really disastrous and um, will, I think, then strengthen or increase the possibilities of, um, of Starmer getting his way, of, of Coyne being elected and Starmer getting his way. But again, you know, still all to play for in that one. Starmer's long-term aim, I'm sure, is, um, is, is to try to consolidate his hold. It may also be that he is looking uh, for some form of um, alliance, some sort of electoral deal, um, even some sort of remodeling of labor um, in, in the phrase, you know, the delaborization of labor, uh, weakening the union link, uh, doing the same in terms of parties' democratic structures and essentially concentrating power in the hands of the officials and in the parliamentary Labour Party, turning the Labour Party into a version of the American Democrats with that same sort of uh, organisational form, with a very limited grassroots, really just a set of uh, cheerleaders who will um, you know, provide a crowd, uh, perhaps a few leaflet deliverers, sort of stage army, uh, you know, for the leadership. Something that Blair thought he'd achieved, and indeed the Labour right thought they'd achieved, um, but the, 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 the Corbyn movement, in a sense, to, you know, temporarily uh, upset that. 
the the Labour left is is disorganised. I think it's demoralised. Many many comrades have, have either left the party, they dropped out of activity, um, and although there are a number of uh, number of groups that are attempting to fight back, number of initiatives that have taken place, number of very good initiatives that have been developed to try to unite the left and to defend the left, the situation I think is 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 very serious. We are in a weak position and, um, you know, we, we will need to mount a very serious fight back and the conference will be an opportunity to do that. But of course, the real weakness is, is that official left, particularly the socialist campaign group of MPs and Momentum, who um, still have uh, a degree of support, but still, in a sense, wish to keep their heads down, their focus is, is very much on their personal careers. It may also be that their perspective of um, simply concentrating on electoralism means that they always make concessions to the Labour right, that they in a sense go along with that. That is in many ways one of their sort of historical flaws. So, uh, you know, coming up to the conference, a very, uh, a very interesting period and uh, we will see more leaks, I'm sure, coming forward. But these will be part of the strategy. And um, given what we can determine of that strategy, uh, one that isn't really just going to go away, one that isn't just focused on the left, but is actually focused on uh, Starmer becoming um, a Labour um, a Labour Prime Minister. Um, he may well think, just uh, in conclusion, that he's perhaps wind is turning in his favour. Um, the, the strategy that he was adopting was in some ways to try and keep quiet, uh, responsible opposition, and hope that the government would sort of fall apart. And, uh, you know, he may well see a tide beginning to turn in that way. Uh, Johnson's opinion poll ratings have fallen. And indeed, the uh, the current divisions within the cabinet uh, on uh, be between the chancellor and the prime minister on public spending, on taxation, on NHS funding, on social care funding, might indicate that that, that this government has, has got more divisions, and in fact, it's had a you know a, a sort of lucky run, and that it, it could uh, that could come to an end. Uh, the reports in today's papers. Um, about uh, angry disputes between Sunak and Johnson could be uh, an indication of that. Um, it, it was also, I think, interesting um, that, uh, that the various leaks about splits and so on, with different sides giving their briefings across the papers, all I think show um, you know, some, something uh, a little less confident and a little less united. The vaccine bounce may be going, um, the uncertainties, not now about how um, COVID and the post-COVID period will be dealt with, the end of the furlough scheme. All of these things, I think, mean that as we go into the autumn, we could be in for some uh, you know, political uncertainty at the top of the Tories. Um, we're likely to see more rows. Uh, we're likely to see more occasions, I think, for Johnson to go um, uh, tonto as it is. That's a new one on me. Yeah? I always thought Tonto was the uh, the low rages sidekick, but apparently it's um, 
it's a, a, a phrase meaning we sort of went mad or ballistic, sort of crazy or whatever. Anyway, so more chances to go uh, go tonto for, for Johnson and the Tories, and also more chances for Starmer then to um, come in as the safe pair of hands. Um, if Starmer thinks that he's going to repeat the Blair uh, phenomenon, uh, I think he's you know very mistaken. Um, it's not just a case of reading Tony Blair's books, which are my constant companions and which I gain great inspiration and insight from. Remember that Blair uh, not only was operating in a different period in the 1990s, but the ruling class were quite prepared to allow him to come in with a tired and divided Tory government. And um, the economy was in a, in a very different place. And indeed, the world, the world situation was very different. So simply uh, pretending to be Tony Blair is not going to get you elected. And uh, it's certainly not going to be any answer to the problems facing uh, both British society and more importantly, the British working class. Anyway, that's my, uh, my report, comrades. So uh, I'll uh, hand it over to Stan from there.